that great to be together and uh, good to see some new faces. Uh, if you're new with us for the first time today or newer, uh, I, I see a couple of you out there that I didn't get a chance to meet. Uh, not that I'm all that big of a deal or important for you to meet, but I'd love to meet you. So uh, let me say from the outset, uh, it gets a little crazy around here after church and I, I know some of you need to rush off and do stuff, but a number of us leaders have a tendency to kind of linger around up front after service. So if you just want to connect and say hello, uh, feel free to do that. We won't block the door and make it hard for you to get out. So if you want to slip out the door and get out of here, uh, you're welcome to do that. But if you'd like to just say hello and get to know us, meet a name, uh, sorry, learn a name, meet a face, uh, we'll be around and looking forward to do that with you. Thanks, Michelle, for leading us. I don't know where you went, but thanks, Michelle. There she is. Thanks for leading us in that uh, opening little devotional for Lent. We have said around here for a good number of years when people ask, what kind of church are you? Which I know kind of infers that you have some church background and many of us don't. But for those who have some church background and ask that question, what kind of church are you? We have often responded with, we're Baptocostal. Um, which is, you know, sort of like means everything and nothing all, all the same. And so now you're sitting there and you're going, now we're doing Lent? Does that mean we're Baptist Catholic Costal? I don't, I don't really know. But um, anything that will help us connect in with the presence and person of Jesus and to lift God's name high, we are going to do. Um, there's a story I've told it before, so I won't tell it in, in great depth, but I think it helps continue the theme of this day so well of a guy who bought a house and had a space at his home for a garden and hadn't yet developed the garden. And so over a number of months, he decided to plant a garden for the first year. And he had a few little fruits that grew. You know, it seems like strawberries and tomatoes can kind of grow. Even my black thumbs can make strawberries and tomatoes grow. But at the end of the first year, he really felt like he wanted a more robust garden with more fruit. And so he fertilized this year and he churned the soil and he, you know, built some nets to keep the birds out and the deer away and really invested a bit more. And he had more fruit year two. And this kind of continued to progress as the years went on. In year three, he did more work. In year four, he built raised gardens and he irrigated. In year five, he toiled. And, and by year five, he had quite a harvest at harvest time. One of his friends came over to have dinner with him who was also happened to be a Christ follower. And they, he said, well, let's go walk the garden and get some tomatoes for the salad. And they go out and they're preparing for dinner and they're picking tomatoes. And his friend goes and he picks a tomato and he bites it in. He goes, oh my gosh, praise God for the bounty, for his harvest, for God letting this fruit grow. Praise God for that. And he walks a little further, picks another fruit and eats that strawberry and says, praise God for the fruit of this soil that God has made the plants to grow and the sun to shine and the water. The guy's beginning to get a little annoyed who's put all this work in over the years. And the guy does this the third time. His friend tastes something and says how great it was. And, and the gentleman looks to his friend and says, yes, praise God for the way he grew it. But I wish you would have been here five years ago when God was doing it on his own. And there was no fruit at all and no garden. Very rarely does anybody laugh at that because it creates a little awkwardness for us. But the reality is this, guys, that our spiritual development, our formation, our reclamation of the Christ-likeness that we have been made in the image of will require work from us. 
And in our current age, if we've been around church any period of time, we, we, we kind of scoff at that because that feels so akin to the religion of our grandparents and great-grandparents of works. And you've got to earn your way in. And let me say very clearly, as I've said before, the gospel of Christ is very much opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. In fact, the garden of your life to be shaped into Christ's likeness will not happen through earning. It will only happen when you cooperate with the Spirit and put in the effort. And as we begin this journey of Lent today, the encouragement at, at its foundational basis is for you and I and for us as a community to cooperate with the work of the Spirit to put in the effort to become more like Christ. If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter six, Mark chapter six. And as Michelle mentioned, if you're using uh, the Bible app, version, grab that out now. I'm gonna um, actually have not looked at mine yet today either. Uh, so uh, grab that out. Nope, not your Kindle app, Stu. Um, wouldn't that be awkward? Uh, grab out your Bible app and load that up for today, the deserted places. Mark chapter six, if you're using a printed copy of the scriptures, I'm gonna be reading from the New Living Translation. Use whatever you like, obviously, but just so you kind of have some context for where I'm at. Mark chapter six, I'm gonna begin in uh, verse 30 of Mark chapter six. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. And then Jesus said, Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have enough time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. Some of yours will say desolate place or deserted place. This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Verse 36, they say, send the crowds away so they can go to nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said to his disciples, you feed them. With what, they asked, would have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have? Jesus asked, go and find out. And they came back and they reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. In my house, that's enough for one teenager. Um. <laughs> Verse 39, then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100 and Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and he looked up toward heaven and he blessed them. And then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. And they all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed that day. Pray with me if you would. 
Father, Son, and Spirit, we uh, gather in this place knowing uh, that the kingdom belongs to you and the power belongs to you and the glory belongs to you. So move in us, shape us into uh, your image as you had always designed us to live. And may your ways become like second nature to us, even in these moments as we put in the effort, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. It's been nearly 21 years uh, since Jen and I were married. We'll celebrate 21 years on July 3rd this year. And uh, I remember as clear as day those nearly 21 years ago when we stood in a church and uh, our dear friend, uh, Pastor Randy, officiated the wedding. And I remember a moment when he said, now turn to one another, join hands and repeat after me. And in front of all of our family and friends, and uh, for those of you who have been married, you uh, maybe have had a similar experience. I remember turning uh, over to her so that now I could see part of the crowd. And I remember looking out and thinking, you weren't invited. Who is that? Per- I, do you know that person? Who's that? You know, and you're just, you're kind of doing all that number, but he says, turn to one another. And the minute I turned and I locked eyes with Jen, it was like everything else dissolved. And we said, I do's. And we said, we wills. And we said, I will. And we said yes to one another. And uh, it was a very, very powerful moment. And for anybody who's been in any sort of relationship for any period of time, whether it's uh, a daughter or son, married, dating, you know that in those years that pass, some of those yeses turn to maybes on some days. Some of those I wills turn into get outs on other days. See, the reality is 21 years ago when Jen and I looked at each other as 22-year-old children and said, I do and I will, we had no idea what our yes meant. We had no idea what that yes would cost us. We had no idea what that I will would mean. We had no idea the level and depth of sacrifice an I do would actually mean in the I don't want to of life. But we said yes. We said I do and we said I will. And this is sort of in, in many ways the nature of our followership of Jesus. This turning to one another and looking in one another's eyes and saying I do. Yes, I will. And this is the invitation of this Lenten season for you and I. This is the invitation of the next six Sundays to yet again turn our attentions back to Jesus and look him in the eye as best we know how and say to him, I will. Yes, I do. I don't really know what that yes means. I don't always know how to hear your voice. For some, we're thinking, I don't even know if you're out there, but I do know in this moment, I'm giving you my yes. I'm giving you my I do. And we see this play out in such beautiful space among these disciples. This text provides us a unique invitation to turn our attentions back to God, to his power and his presence, even in the deserted places of life. And I suspect that for many of us, our souls at times feel like pretty deserted places. Your work may feel like a pretty desolate place. Your 
relationships may feel like pretty solitary spots in life at this moment. But God loves to work in the deserted places. This is like his favorite place to work is when you and I get to deserted places in life. That is where God has a way of showing up and working. Look back with me at verse 30 and 31. The apostles returned to Jesus from a ministry tour. And they told him all they had done and taught. And then Jesus says, let us go off by ourselves to a quiet place or a desolate place and rest a while. And he said this, and I don't want us to miss this. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. It kind of goes without saying just simply by looking at me, there is plenty of time for me to eat. I'm not missing any meals. Can you imagine being in a place at life where your life is so out of control and so chaotic and there are so many things coming and going in your life that you don't even remember to eat? And then your friend Stu scans the room <laughs> to see a lot of heads shaking. Yes, it actually happens all the time. It happens all the time. Our life has become so full and so busy and so chaotic that many days two o'clock rolls around and you feel that grumbling in your stomach or that hanger coming on and you realize I've been running so fast today, I have not even paused long enough to eat. And if we're at our best, we will probably give ourselves permission to stop and rest, and prepare a meal or pull our lunch out of the office fridge and sit down. But the reality is for most of us, we grab a Snickers bar on the run or we drive through our favorite drive through and we shove something down our throat and we keep on going. And this is the very biology of our bodies crying out for us to rest to pay attention to what's going on. Even Jesus felt this sense. I mean, seriously, when you have so many people coming and going that you can't even eat, something is miswired in your life. So off to a remote and deserted place they go so they can rest, right? And in verse 31, Jesus says, let's go by ourselves. Let's get quiet. And in verse 32, Mark, who's written this, reminds us, they left the boat for a quiet place so they could be alone. And this story of the feeding of the 5,000 is so important to the life of these disciples that in each of the four gospels, we see this story retold by every single one of the gospel writers. It's one of the only ones that makes it in all four gospels. And I don't remember off the top of my head, I won't try to wow you with my uh, trivia knowledge, but I, it's in all four. I know uh, Mark and John are both six. I think Luke is eight and maybe Matthew's 14. But you just can Google that and look at all four gospels. It's like there is something about this Jesus way of living. There's something about the life and teaching of Jesus that all four gospel writers say, hey, I've got another angle on that same story. You gotta read my account of it because I was there too. And here's what it meant to me. See, at least in part, because this deserted place is where there are no props to hold us up. 
This, this value of the deserted place is mentioned in all four gospels because it's to that deserted place where there's no artificiality to hold up our lives. I mean, the really deserted place, the place where your phone is broken and it won't work anymore and there's no cell signal. I heard a friend tell a story about going away for a couple of days in silence and solitude. And he went to this room and he had never done it before because he thought it was a stupid idea and he didn't want to do it. And he hated the concept. And he arrived in the room that he had rented had one bed and one chair. And that is it. Literally a bed and a chair. And he spent three days in a room with a bed and a chair and a journal. And God showed up. And he heard God speak. And he heard God sing over him how much he loves him and how much he longs to be with him. This is the desolate place. The ancient theologian Augustine knew this ancient and desolate place very well. And James K.A. Smith writes of his own spiritual formation journey in his book On the Road with St. Augustine. I want to read a fairly lengthy quote of that. So try and stay engaged. And it's in your U version as well. If you want to pick up the book, I gave you a link there. But maybe close your eyes and listen to this quote if that's helpful or space out, but try to stay engaged with this. He, he writes this of Augustine's life with God and his own journey towards Christ-likeness. He says, Augustine is uncanny for us. He is so ancient, he is strange, and yet his experience is so common, they feel contemporary. My hope is that this uncanniness might give you a sense of what an authentic Christianity feels like from the inside out. The wager here is that this ancient African in Augustine might actually make Christianity plausible for you. Mired in the anxieties and the disappointments of your 21st century life, that's not necessarily because you've been looking for God, but because you've been trying to actually find yourself. So when you go spelunking into the caves of your own soul with Augustine, you might be surprised who you meet down there. Augustine might make Christianity believable for you, even if you've heard it all, you've been there, you've done that, and you left the stupid Christian t-shirt at the door. Here's a Christianity to consider before you stop believing, he writes. Augustine may, might make Christianity plausible again for those who have been burned or who suspect that Christianity they've seen is just a cover for a power play and self-interest, or some tired moralism that seems angry all the time, or a version of a middle-class comfort too often confused with the so-called American dream. If the only faith you can imagine is the faith of your parents, Augustine's been down that road as well. And what if it was precisely the strangeness of his ancient struggle that made Augustine perennial? Someone with the distance from our own immersion to give us a vantage point for seeing ourselves. And the Christian faith, all new. You see, the inference here, the invitation here is that in order to find God, you and I will have to go to the depths of our own soul. Because the person in us, in me, who so often worships God isn't actually even the real us, the one God made. 
And this gets a, a little bit philosophical and confusing, but this reality that the fake me and the fake you and the false you can't worship God because it's not real. We have to actually become who we are to worship God. We have to know where we are. So when we arrive at God, make it practical, Stu, when we arrive at God and we're really angry on a Sunday morning, but the band kicks off and we go, okay, well, I gotta sing, Jesus, we love you. Actually, I really don't like him. Jesus, we, it's not real. And so the best thing we can do in that moment is maybe sit down and go, I don't know if I can sing these words on screen because all I feel for God is anger. And trust that God will actually arrive in that moment. And that God will meet you there. And that God loves you enough to not leave you there. Don't misunderstand me to say that, hey, let's just keep it real. <laughs> because sometimes keeping it real shows everybody around us that we're a real jerk and that we should really become different, okay? So keeping it real is a means to the end of transformation. Authenticity is not the end goal. It is the pathway to transformation. But we're gonna have to slow life down enough. We're gonna have to go to a desolate place. We're gonna have to, in the midst of running around one day, when we feel that lostness bubble up inside of us, maybe simply pull the car over to the side of the road, turn off the radio, flip the phone upside down and sit there for 10 minutes and say, God, if you're real, you're gonna have to show up right now because my world is spinning out of control. And you might be amazed what happens in those 10 minutes of silence. Verse 32, so they left in a boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore. Jesus saw the huge crowd and he stepped out from the boat and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can buy something to eat. Jesus says, you feed them. You feed them. So, so the very thing the disciples needed, that even Jesus recognized that they needed, was, hey guys, whew, life's getting a little bit crazy. We need some alone time and we need to eat. He says right out the gate, right? They, they had been running so fast in life that they needed to pull away to a quiet place because they hadn't even had time to eat. And now they arrive at a place where they're supposed to have quiet and peace and nobody around. And what happens? Everybody shows up. Dang it. And there's no food around to eat. It's like the double whammy of Jesus, right? And they come to Jesus and they go, Jesus, send them away. That'll serve our purpose of giving us some alone time and get them some food. And Jesus says, you feed them, meaning they're not gonna go away. And you feed them. As if to say to them, guys, I'm trying to get you to deal what's actually going on in your soul. And what's actually going on in your soul is that you don't wanna be around people and you don't wanna serve them. Deal with that. Deal with that, wrestle with that. Live into that. Admit where you're actually at in all that. And then Jesus does this amazing thing. He sits them all down on green grass. I mean, it reads like a Grateful Dead concert to me. Like, what do we do? Well, how much bread do you have? It's like this communal 
hippie thing. It's all, it's like the fish. And they come back and they report what they have. And Jesus told the disciples, have the, verse 39, have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. You catch that? Like, not in a dirty, rocky soil, but in green grass. He leads me beside peaceful streams. Sit down in the green grass. And here's the thing. Just have them sit down. I'm gonna feed them. You don't have to do anything. But you could deal with what's going on in your soul. But you don't really want them around. And you're hungry and you're selfish and you wanna do your thing. Why don't you sit down and you let me minister to them and just be present to my ministry. Just be present to my work, Jesus invites them. It's a shocking and a startling discovery in this reality that rest is found in a deserted place. Rest is found in a deserted place. Now, the deserted place will not always look like we think it will. It may, the deserted place may have, you know, four kids running around in the background screaming and yelling and breaking things. The deserted place may be full of 300 emails in your inbox that need attending to, but in that deserted place, rest is found if we will simply sit down and let Jesus do his thing. Jesus tells the disciples to sit him down and then we know the rest of this story that he breaks the bread and the fish Everybody eats as much as they want. There's no rationing. There's no stress about there not being enough. Everybody gets what they need. And Jesus is essentially saying, rest a while and watch me work. Inviting them to turn their attentions and pursuits. Would you grab my hand, Jesus says to them. Would you look me in the eye and say, yes, and I will. And I do, Jesus. I am yours. I don't know how you're gonna get this done, Jesus, but I'm with you. I'm just gonna sit down and, and I'm gonna let you do it. And in the sitting down and not making it all happen is sometimes the effort. <laughs> that is the work. This last week, uh, Rye um, lost the keys uh, to a borrowed car. Um, and there's <laughs> two sets of keys to the borrowed car. <laughs> And uh, it's, a, it's a whole long thing. I won't bore you with all the details, but uh, it was stressful. And as you know, I travel almost every week for work. So Jen had been a single mom to four teenagers all week long while I'm traveling and hanging out with pastors and eating good food in restaurants and, you know, not raising kids. All the moms want to murder me. <laughs> and so I come home and these keys are lost and, and Jen's feeling the pressure of we got to find the keys because we got to return the car and the whole thing. And, and you know, I'll not to throw Rai Rai into the bus too much, but Rai Rai is just like a 16-year-old kid. Like, yeah, you know, it'll be fine. It's like, it won't be fine. <laughs> and so Jen is busy and says, listen, you gotta, you gotta deal with it. And uh, just sits down. And it's like mama came to the end of her rope and wasn't gonna go find the keys and wasn't gonna scream and yell. Just like, you just go work it out. And Ryan brings the trash can, the big trash dumpster from our, and empties out all the bags of trash around the car because this car, the key, if it's nearby the car, it'll start with the push button start. And so the 16 year old decides, well, if it's in the trash, if I get the trash bags close enough to the car and hit the button, the car will start and I'll know the keys got put in the trash. Pretty brilliant, really. 
And so there's trash bags all around the car full of nasty, gross, weak old trash. And she gets in the car and hits the button, boom, and it starts up. She goes, I found the keys. I'm not gonna have to dig through 20 minutes of trash, but I found the keys. It was just, it's like that turning of like, it's going to require effort, guys. And it is going, you're gonna have to sift through some trash, but the keys are in the bag. The keys to the kingdom are not like out there, unaccessible, they're there, but the work will be sitting down amidst your garbage and being quiet. And when he doesn't show up that time, you do it again the next day. And then you do it again the next day. And you do it again the next day. Because the kingdom of heaven was so valuable to people that they were willing to sell everything they had to gain the kingdom. So it's worth a 10 minute sitting on the side of the road, making you late for an appointment to give God space to work because the kingdom is worth everything. There's rest in these deserted places. There's rest for us. The second piece in this, and I, I wanna get to um, this final little movement for us, if you will, in this reflection. Uh, miracles happen in deserted places. It's amazing how miracles happen in deserted places when, when we just sit down on the green grass knowing we can't make it happen. You can't heal your kid. You want to. You've tried everything, but it's gonna have to be Jesus. And so you do everything you know how to do. And then when Jesus arrives, he says, all right, well now sit down. And we trust. We can't heal our boss. We can't heal our spouse. We can't change everything. But miracles have a way of happening in the deserted place, just like this one had a way of happening. And in facing all that, there's a confession in how we draw back into God as we confess that, God, I have tried to do this all on my own and I have come up short. I can't feed all these people, Jesus. You've got to send them away. I'm not up to the task, Jesus. I don't have enough money. I'm too tired. I'm too exhausted. I've been burnt too many times. We have all been there. And maybe you're there right now, but I, I want to invite us as a collective body in these closing moments to turn a more valuable corner together than simply saying, I can't do it but to take a next step in what God would invite us to do. To turn beyond and turn to Jesus, turning beyond our external pressures and all of the things that face us in life right now. Because if you are like me, it is so easy to focus all of my thoughts and all of my energy on all of the externals in my life that are making life difficult or impossible for me. And it's not until I shift away from the simple externals and look to Jesus and say, Jesus, what is it in me that when it meets those externals, things unravel? You've got to do a work in me, Jesus, because the reality is most of our prayers are God change the external. Change my spouse. God, when are you going to change my boss? God, when are you going to heal the situation? God, when are you going to do the acts? Instead of saying to God, God, this stuff is disintegrating my soul. I want you to do work on my soul. 
Will you do a work in me, Jesus? I'm here, I'm gonna be quiet and I'm gonna listen to what you reveal about what's spelunking down inside the cavernous realms of my human soul. And when we get down there and we get real with God long enough, we find that there is much to confess to him. There is much to own. There is much to say to God. So I wanna invite us and lead us through a time of confession. Uh, don't worry, uh, we're not gonna put a mic up here and have everybody come up single file and confess their worst sin. It's not gonna be like that, so no need to run out just yet. But I'm gonna lead us through some categories of confession. And then after reading off a category, I'm just gonna be quiet for about a minute and let you do business with God in silence. There's a good chance if you're like me that uh, it's been too long, whether it was this morning or last night or a year ago, but it's been too long since you let God tenderize your soul a little bit, telling you how much he loves you and confessing the areas where you've come up short, the areas in which you haven't trusted. So I'm gonna lead us through these and give you this time of quiet. So if you would, just bow your head and uh, begin to breathe deeply. If you've got a phone nearby, flip it upside down, turn it off so you can be with God. If you've got a Bible or papers in your hand, I'd encourage you to just set them to your side. And then uh, take maybe a posture that would lend you well to really engaging with God. Some of you may even decide you wanna get on your knees. Others may wanna just sit quietly and bow their head. We're gonna start by confessing our pride. This act of putting ourselves in the place of God making ourselves the center and objective of our own life. The refusal to recognize and accept our status as creatures created in God's image who are utterly dependent on God. disobedience. This is the rejection of what you know to be God's will. The refusal to follow his instruction as it's given in the scriptures. Ultimately to believe that we know better for our lives than God does. arrogance, being overbearing, argumentative, opinionated, 
and ultimately obstinate. Envy and covetousness. This is the dissatisfaction with our place in God's order of creation. A lack of contentment. The accumulation of things to prove our own self-worth. The use of others for personal advantage or the quest for status and power at the expense of others. Lust, the misuse of sex, a distorting of desire, the objectification or sexualizing of others, and the turning of others into objects that only exist for personal pleasure. The carelessness with which we honor our marriage vows, both in thought and in deed. Injustice, a callous disregard for the unfortunate among us. The forgotten, the poor, the hungry, the oppressed, those in need, an unwillingness to be a voice for the voiceless, to be concerned with our own welfare while intentionally disregarding the needs of those around us. God, we confess that we have disintegrated the design of our own souls on a pretty regular basis. We were designed in your image. We were made to be your witnesses and bearers of your beauty, to live this way of Jesus as the most beautiful and truest and most authentic way ever invented. Here are confessions. And God, continue to expose in us our own soul's desire to know you. 
God, may we in our confession experience your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy. I'm gonna invite the band and the prayer team to join me up here now. And uh, we've got a few closing minutes together for those who uh, wanna continue to think on that, for those who wanna sing, for those who wanna stand and clap. Uh, these are our closing moments to celebrate together as a community of faith. And as uh, the band plays, I, I wanna just encourage us to pray this ancient prayer called the Lord's Prayer. Amanda, if you would find that Lord's Prayer that you had up earlier and toss it up on screen, thank you so much. Um, so stand to your feet, if you would, in these moments. And uh, we're gonna pray this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And uh, after that, we're gonna sing one last song of worship before Dan comes up to wrap up the day. Our prayer team is stationed throughout the room and ready to pray with you. So if God was stirring something in you in that time of confession that you wanna continue to pray through with somebody or if there's something completely disconnected from any of that that you really uh, are hoping to get prayer for today, come see the prayer team. Maybe you need healing. Maybe you need encouragement. Maybe you just need somebody to be in something with you in prayer there, both here in the front and in the back and would love to pray with you. I also wanna encourage you during this closing time to go interact with our giving station. This is our opportunity to give back and to announce back to God that everything is his and that we give back a portion of that in thanks and gratitude. Church family, this is our time to give sacrificially and generously. If you're gonna do that digitally, feel free to do that. If you need to figure out how, we've got a little station in back and might I even encourage you, even if you didn't bring a gift today, to go back to the station at some point and just pray over the gifts people are giving. Knowing that it's only through our collective giving together uh, that makes our ministry happen, that creates a space for the homeless to stay, and for discipleship to happen in our midst. So let's pray this Lord's Prayer together and then we'll worship in song. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours are the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.